Hello and welcome. I'm Kirsten Johnston and I'm the chair of the Marketing Focus Group at the British Chamber of Commerce, Shanghai. This is our fifth episode of season two in the Live Lounge podcast series. And today we bring you an insightful broadcast about the growth and globalization of higher education in China. This podcast is hosted by British Chamber member Richard Seymour, who is the Senior Marketing Manager at Britannica International School in Shanghai and former Project Manager and Associate Lecturer at Oxford Brookes University Business School in the UK. Richard is joined by John Darwin Van Fleet, who is the Director of Corporate Globalisation at the Antai College of Economics and Management at Shanghai Jiao Tong University. Also in the lounge is David Dufour, Director of the International MBA Programme at IBSS, part of the Xi'an Jiao Tong Liverpool University in Suzhou. Together, the panel discuss market trends, current practices, opportunities and developments in the higher education industry in China. I'll now hand over to Richard and his panel in the mini lounge, and we hope you enjoy this show. Okay, wonderful. And that very nicely leads into my first question. Why is the globalization of education important? Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, let's just take China where we work. Anybody who looks at the Chinese economy for the course of the past 20 years has seen a scale and scope of globalization that's rarely matched in human history. As a result, obviously businesses have to be more globally oriented in their operations and their perspectives and their hiring than uh, they have in the past. And that's why an appropriate educational environment in such a macroeconomic environment is really important. And that's why we think we have to really keep leading that, uh, uh, that charge. Okay. Uh, David, uh, Xi'an Jiaotong Liverpool University is a joint venture university in Suzhou. The name alone seems to embody the idea of globalised education. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about the university and um, the challenges that you faced in such an international collaboration? Well, the, um, yeah, so university started uh, 2006 and the idea was just to, to, to bring the best of East and West. I mean, this is also the motto of the, of the university. So obviously, yes, we are trying to get um, the best we can from the, uh, the, the Western side of, uh, of education, uh, but also bringing together some ideas with the Chinese culture, with the, the long history also of the Chinese education. The programs that we have, I would say, merged the two ideas to, together. Uh, we have uh, uh, part of the management part, I would say, is, uh, have, is following the, the British system, but at the same time, the content and the learning outcomes and uh, the things that we are delivering, you find also uh, quite a lot of, uh, of ideas coming from the, from the Chinese education system. Okay, and um, John, I mean, Antai College is one of the China's highest ranked business schools with a history dating back to 1903. So it's very impressive. So how does tradition shape education that students receive here today? Uh, I guess one of the most powerful ways that the uh, history of Shanghai Jiaotong University affects what we do now is that the brand has so much uh, resonance and so much authority that we're able to recruit both faculty and students uh, at a very high level uh, and then they are able to go out and uh, into their careers if they're students and uh, get uh, premier roles and uh, promotions and recognition and this is a virtuous cycle The, the brand influences the outcome of the students the students outcome is stronger and they in turn become brand ambassadors for us. So that's a pretty nice place to be. <laughs> uh, do you find that the expectations between um, Western and Chinese students differ at higher education level here? The expectation of Western versus Chinese students? Uh, sure, I guess, uh, because they both come from a rather dramatically different uh, educational background. Uh, 
in China, an undergraduate student who's admitted to a, a decent school is very unlikely to uh, fail out or drop out. Uh, that's not so true, uh, at least in the United States, uh, in the Americas, uh, in North America, uh, where you do have an academic job to do at your uh, undergraduate institution. So students uh, may expect by the time they get to college here, if they're from here, that uh, the uh, environment's gonna be a little bit more forgiving. The students from the West may expect to have to meet a higher academic standard. Uh, that's one thing. David, perhaps you have some ideas on this. Yeah, when you, I'm, I'm teaching some modules where we have both international students from Europe, USA, and different, different parts of the world, and also Chinese students. Uh, so yes, you can see that their approach is not the same. Mm. Definitely, the yeah, the, the behavior, the approach to work, the um, the process, simply the, the way they are working is different. Uh, but I would say when you look at the results, we, you don't necessarily see differences in uh, in results. Like say, in terms of quality, what they can deliver can be similar. Uh, but it's just like they are they are, they are achieving the same results or similar quality results with different approach. That's, yeah, that's, that's very clear when you look at how they're working. Do you find there's many challenges in creating a curriculum for such a diverse global cohort? Uh, well, the, 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 uh, the curriculum is, uh, is based on, uh, on, yes, on the idea of lear learning outcomes. So we, we set up those goals uh, before we start. So before we, uh, we actually look at content. And... Uh, I'd say the, the, the content is not going necessarily going to take into account whether we have whether Chinese students or, or Western students. It's, uh, we, we start from goals. We want to achieve something and we are going to build the, the content and the, the curriculum based on, the, based on that, based on what we, we, we think needs to be achieved, what they need to know, uh, what, they, what they have to, to be learning when they, when they finish their modules. Yeah. Again, primary language for the curriculum is English, I take it. English only, yes. English only. English only, no, yeah, no, no discussion about that. Everything <laughs> has to be in English. I mean, the students can use, for example, I mean, it's an interesting question because for academic sources, they can use uh, foreign, uh, foreign languages, mm. including Chinese, for example. But when they put this into their dissertation, they must at least translate the bit that they are going to sure. use in English. Okay, so they're going to put this into the appendix, that's fine. Mm. Uh, so they can use, yeah. Chinese, uh, Chinese um, piece of academic work, but at the end, in the final work, it has to be translated into English. Yeah. I think there's an interesting feature here, which is that if you think about the leading business schools in China, this is probably out to all the universities as well, but we know business schools best, so we talk about that. Uh, the leading business schools in China share something similar with the leading business schools around the world, which is they are all trying to achieve accreditation standards. And there's three accrediting bodies, uh, two from Europe and one from the United States, that accredit business schools around the world. And the accreditation is based on what they call assurance of learning, learning outcomes. And those learning outcomes are agnostic about the citizenship of the person or the language they speak. The goal of learning is a goal of learning regardless of whether it's in English or Chinese. Here at the Antai College, we're primarily a Chinese language institution, but it doesn't really matter in terms of uh, aiming at quality learning outcomes. What kind of technology are you used in teaching your curriculum for students? Uh, personally, I use uh, I use in one of my modules. I'm teaching a business strategy for master students, and it's cross uh, five different programs: master management, supply chain, uh, business analytics, and uh, and project management. And teaching business strategy to students who've never worked before is not easy. <laughs> how, how do you teach them how to manage 
a company, they never manage any job, right? Or, or, or very little. So we use a business simulation, and it's uh, so it's a, it's a game. It's, a, it's an online game where a group of five gets to take decisions, uh, taking care of the company. And they have like a, in a real situation, they have to take care of the product. So product design, they can tweak the design, they can change the design. So going more high tech, going more mass market, for example. Uh, then they need to produce. So they have the factory, so they need to manage the machines, the HR, the production, and so on. So they need to take decisions. Uh, then they have the marketing, they need to sell. So they have uh, decision power on things like price, uh, advertising, and things like that. And then they get finance, of course, finance results. So they can raise loans, they emit stock, and, uh, and so on. So they get four range of decisions, and then quality comes halfway in the, in the game. So that's the piece of simulation that we are using. And they are going to learn by doing, and that helps a lot. I mean, this is uh, it's a, it's a showcase of what we what we can do, uh, but it really helps a lot because afterwards I can refer to that. Remember in the game what you have done. Uh, remember when you had to take care of the of your market, for example, of your uh, of your product. You had to tweak this. You decided to do that, and I can really refer to something that I know they know. Does that do um, global trading? Current, current exchange, things like that? There is a module, and so far I've decided not to use it. Okay, the, I think it would make things maybe a little bit too, more, too complicated. Okay. If I had the same batch of students later on, maybe we would play it again, mm. including, yes, the international aspect. It's, it's possible to use it. The, the, the company who is providing us with this game said, hey, this is a new module, do you want to use it? I'm testing it at the moment, but probably it's a bit early. And does everyone get to be the CEO, or do they take roles within the company? They take roles. Usually they take roles. Uh, okay. Usually they take roles. I mean, actually, I'm not looking too much into how they take the decisions. Yeah. But uh, what I can say is that the groups who seem to be a little bit more successful are the ones where, yes, they do split the role. Every person gets one responsibility, focus on that, and then they, they concert each other to take final decisions. Okay. And they like, they like this game so much that uh, this year they really challenge me, say, we really wanted to play it again. Yes. We didn't like the we didn't like the fact that we did mistakes at the beginning that had an impact on the long run. So we would like to play again. I say, all right, you guys want to play again? This is what we're gonna do. I'm going to organize a competition within the university, within the business school. So probably in January when they don't have exams, mm -hmm. and the best team will go to play an international competition made hosted by the by the supplier company basically, where they're going to compete against other business schools. I know that India is playing. I know that Southeast Asia is playing, America is playing. So it's going to be like the Olympic Games of business simulation, <laughs> and I'm really excited to do that. Yeah. Fantastic. Yes. Uh, John, I mean, you were kind enough to give us a tour of, of the university while we were here. Um, what role does technology play in um, studies here? No, I think it's highly similar. We uh, offer uh, Markstrat, uh, the beer game, they call it. These are all these online simulations that support business-focused uh, learning. They're tremendously popular, yes. tremendously popular. And our students also say, when they're done, geez, can we play it again? Can we do it again? Because <laughs> it's so much fun and it's such a great learning experience. That's, that's pretty common, at least in business schools around the world now, is leveraging technology to provide uh, action-based learning for students in the classroom mm -hmm. and out of the classroom. These, uh, these simulations, of course, are location agnostic. You know, the student can be flying to, you know, whatever, you know, in a hotel room in Dubai or something, and they're part of their class. They're playing away. Given um, that many of the universities are using the same technology in this, in this respect, what's, what are some of the unique parts about uh, anti-college anti and Jiaotong University? 
Well, I'm sure that <laughs> some people here would be very eager for me to say that we are unique because of this and this and this. Uh, I think that uh, the one thing I'm quite proud of uh, being here uh, for is our dean's vision is rather unusual, I think, not just for business schools in China, but for business schools around the world. He is uh, strongly focused on improving the interface between uh, academic business education and actual learning outcomes that promote business, promote uh, industry success. That gap is uh, uncomfortably wide in some parts of the world and in some schools. Uh, some of them, unfortunately, have too much of a focus just on the academic achievement of their faculty and the students following along in that model. Uh, our Dean Chen is resolutely focused on making sure that our curriculum design, that our faculty hiring, that our faculty promotion, all the aspects of the content, the software of the school, are focused on making industry better. And that's, we're pretty proud of that. I may, I may ask you the same question if you don't mind, Amy. Obviously, you know, the, the collaboration with Liverpool University is very unique in itself. One thing that I'd say, and this has an impact both, I mean, uh, the, maybe the students don't see it, but uh, in the way we are managing things, I would say that I, I call this our quality assurance, and actually that's, that's the name we are, we are using for it. It's how we are checking things, how we are validating basically everything that a teacher is doing. Uh, there is a lot of checks and controls on how we are assessing the students, for example. Uh, so if I am uh, responsible for a module, I will have to draw, uh, let's say, an exam or several pieces of exam, right? I don't have full control over that. I need first to validate with other people. So it will be validated first in the same division that I am. Mm -hmm. Somebody in Suzhou, one of my colleagues, will check and say, yes, it's good, be careful, change this, change that, suggest some, uh, some modification, mm -hmm. first round of, uh, of validation. Uh, then the second round will go to Liverpool University, where another person will check again, suggest new round of uh, modifications, send it back to me. And then there will be a third round with an external consultant that mm. will again potentially propose some, uh, uh, some modification in the content, in the wording, in the outcome of the, of the piece of assessment. And this is for the assessment, and the same thing goes around after for the marking. The marking, when I finish my marking, I will put this online and it will be assessed both in Suzhou by a colleague, in Liverpool by another colleague, and by an external consultant. So I'd say it's for, for, the, for the, the teachers who are coming, the first is like, wow, there is a lot of <laughs> Yes, there is a lot of discussion. But at the same time, it means that, yes, we are really uh, serious about how we are assessing the, the students and we try to be as fair as possible. It sounds like the quality of educational provision in China is, is pretty high and it's, it's obviously yeah. increasing and increasing over the past couple of years. Um, why are so many pupils in China still going overseas to be educated? And I'll ask this question to you first, John, if you don't mind. Not at all. Uh, so I'm from the United States, as you can probably tell by the way I speak. Uh, the United States has about 350,000 Chinese students uh, studying at the moment. Uh, roughly half undergraduate, roughly half graduate students. 20 years ago, 90-some percent were graduate students because the undergraduates don't typically get scholarships. Nowadays, of course, many Chinese parents can you know, afford to send their kids overseas for undergraduate study, so that undergraduate number is going way up. So why are they going overseas? Well, there's a couple of reasons, and one of them is just capacity here in China. Uh, China has something like 2,500 higher education institutions. The United States has something like 4,000. The United States has one quarter of the population of China, so eight times, seven times per capita a number of schools. Uh, the statistics for the UK are uh, even more extreme. Uh, 
it means that there's just a huge number of people here that want to go to school, a good school, and they're just not enough space. So it's a capacity thing part, but it's also clear over the course of many years and getting back to your initial question about the importance of globalization. Even though it is true that compared to 20 years ago, going overseas for five or 10 years and then coming back is less valuable than it was because now as of about 10 years ago, losing that many years of familiarity with the Chinese business environment can be a downside. It's still a pretty substantial upside on your CV to have studied overseas. That gives you an international cachet that somebody who's just gone to a school here may not have. So those two features will continue to drive you know, overseas study on the part of Chinese students for the near term. I'm quite sure of it. And I guess the main Shanghai Jiaotong University makes you a very competitive uh, offering. Does the name help in terms of demand? People you mean in recruiting within China? Yeah. Well, at the undergraduate level in China, there is no admissions department in any university. The admissions is very simple. You know, students get a good score on the Gaokao, and they go to the undergraduate institution. It's just score equals institution. And so where we're from, every school has its admissions department. There is nothing like that in the Chinese undergraduate institution because they don't need it. Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, school, uh, student takes the test, gets the score. Based on your score, the Ministry of Education, local or regional, assigns you to the school that your score entitles you to go to. Uh, that's at the undergraduate level. Graduate level is a bit different. Uh, MBA programs, uh, which is where we spend our time, are competitive. Uh, and they do have admissions departments and they do have marketing and they're looking for good students. Now, when you're a top school like uh, Xi'an Jiaoting Liverpool or us, you usually aren't hurting for applicants. You know, we get plenty of applicants and we're very fortunate to be in that position. Uh, other schools may not be so fortunate. <laughs> Getting back to the, also the economical environment, I mean, what makes it interesting for, uh, for students to go abroad is that if you look at the, the level of for a Chinese investment abroad, I mean, those have increased significantly. And it means that now China needs also people in order to manage projects abroad who have this cultural taste, this cultural understanding of the countries where they are going to implement those projects. And it means that they need students who, yes, who know Europe, who know the United States, who know South America, who know Africa, who know Central Asia. I should say it's it's an added benefit, of course, for the students to have already been abroad and to have this intercultural, I would say, um, flavor in their in their in their education. Yeah. It makes a difference for them. It gives them opportunities, and also China needs that in order to keep going with their in mean, the project like the Silk Road, for instance. I mean all the development project that we have at the moment in Africa and also in Europe. Think of three different kinds of companies. Uh, Huawei, telecommunications. Uh, pick a, a consumer electronic company, Maidea perhaps. Pick an auto company, maybe Geely. These are companies that have operations in 80, 100, 120 foreign countries and have for some time. They're globalizing. They're already globalized and they're doing more of it. These are companies that need people who understand the global environment. And that is, as David suggests, back to the original question, which is, you know, what's the driver of globalization education here? It has to be there, because if it's not, you're just not going to be competitive. What will the future of higher education look like in China? Uh, David. Okay. Uh, well, the, um, what is expected from higher education is, uh, I mean, and, and what I'm going to say is, yeah, is, is actually something which is true all over the world, but 
the challenge we have today at educating people is that things are moving so fast. Technology, for instance, is changing so much what is required from somebody who is a young graduate that the challenge is not to teach knowledge, but is to teach things like know-how. Whatever you are, the, the knowledge that you, you need in order to perform your task, everybody now can get it from their, from their phone, can go online and get the knowledge. So knowledge is not making a difference anymore. Anybody can get it. What you need to learn in higher education is know-how. How do you use the knowledge? How do you use the environment? Things like soft skills. Those things is, are difficult to learn and those things are necessary. These, those things are going to make a difference. I'll give you an example. <clears throat> out of the um, students getting out of school today, are pursuing jobs that didn't exist like five years ago. Things being like uh, social media manager, Uber driver, uh, key, op key uh, opinion leader, for example. All of those jobs, all of those new things that a lot of them are related to technology, that didn't exist five years ago. So for us to teach that, it's impossible. We cannot teach that. We don't even know. I mean, the students who are entering undergraduate today, they are going to pursue jobs that don't even exist today. They are going to use technology that don't exist today, solving problems that we don't even know are problems. Our job is not to teach them what they are going to do, but how they are going to do that. Right. Not teaching what to think, teaching how to think. think. Yeah, indeed. So right now in China, there is an enormous mismatch between supply and demand for higher education. And you can see that in part reflected by all the students that are going overseas. Uh, that's not going to change soon because universities don't can't grow quickly. But the Ministry of Education at the national and regional levels are throwing an enormous amount of money at the academic system development here. And that's going to continue. And it can continue because as China's you know, GDP is still growing at a pretty healthy rate compared to other countries in the world, they have money to invest and they're doing it. And they know that this is a major feature of the economy continuing to advance. And so what you will see here is continuing large-scale investment in the academic environment. And you'll see some investments that favor soft, uh, hardware over software sometimes. Okay, fair enough, you see that in a lot of places. But you'll see ongoing, continuing, rapid increase in demand for higher education, whether it's at undergraduate or graduate level, and an ongoing, substantial increase in the ability of the system to supply that. The, the Chinese education system used to be very top-down. Mm. Uh, teacher knows everything, there is the perfect solution. And in today's economy, this doesn't work anymore. It's just impossible. So, and what you see also that I think the, the message probably from the Ministry of Education is changing a bit, like to say, they are getting to more flexible uh, education system. And we are probably going to see that uh, coming in how we teach or how we are allowed to, or how we can teach to the, to the, to the students. Sure. In my experience, uh, one of the ways that China is actually leading uh, an industry sector is in some cases in business education. Uh, compared to where I'm from, in China, the business schools program teams have an increased amount of influence over curriculum and hiring of faculty and how the educational experience is delivered. In my experience from back at home in the US, uh, the academic departments and institutions tend to have a lot more control. That model is valuable in certain environments, but it doesn't foster rapid change and uh, development because academic departments have their their requirements that may or may not be aligned with uh, the rapidly evolving business environment. So I have found that the environment here is more conducive to rapid change and evolution, which is essential for working in China. 
if, if we look at some of the topics that we are, we are teaching, and I'm, I'm thinking specifically of the, the executive and the intentional MBA for executive that we have, uh, when we choose faculty, uh, we, of course, we favor uh, people who are coming from practice. Mm. Uh, again, for the same reasons, like they stay, they are close to the business environment, they stay close to business environment, and they bring to the class what the students are really asking. The students are asking for practice, tools that they can right, right, right. get back to the company and use straight away. They are asking less. They need to have a, a few foundation to where those tools come from, but I would say the academic aspect is less important. And we start to see also that in, at, even at master level, now the students are asking for more practical things. Yeah. So we need to find this fine balance between academic and big business practice. Yeah. There's an interesting feature to this, which is if you look at the accrediting bodies, the two from Europe and the one from the United States that I mentioned earlier, those bodies' measurements of business schools, I think in some ways are too closely tied to an older model that was exclusively favoring PhDs. And so what you're talking about, David, is this idea of bringing in practitioners who often don't have the PhD, but if the school has a lot of those on its faculty, then it's going to suffer a potential downgrade in its accreditation because not a high enough percentage of faculty have the PhD. This is a way in which accreditation, I think, is lagging business reality. Mm -hmm. we, can, we can hope that it's going to evolve. I mean, I, I just went to my performance review process at the institute, so it's the first time I'm doing it. And yes, my academic score, of course, is not very high because I'm from practice. So mm -hmm. if I look at everything, I mean, the, the number of criteria that relates to articles, publications, and so on. I mean, there, there's a lot of them. It's probably 70% of, uh, of the ranking, of the, of the grading. Yes. And maybe only 30% is based on practice. Mm -hmm. Things like business development, like how many uh, uh, custom, um, uh, company visits that you are doing, how, does, uh, how do you do conferences, or things like that. There's much less of that, but we can hope that it's going to, it's going to evolve. Yeah. Indeed. <laughs> I mean, how does that work in terms of your students? So are you looking for business acumen, or are you looking for academic rigor in your students, or the, the balance between the two? C, all of the above. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd say it depends pretty much on the program that you're doing, but again, I mean, I'm in charge of, of an, ex an MBA for executive, and in that case, I really look for people who have the business connections, people who have the, the business understanding, and are going to be able to bring real tools that the, the students can use. But we are fortunate in this environment that you, this is not a, an imperative trade-off. You're not facing a one-to-one, -one, you know, yes, no, inverse relationship here. We're finding, I'm sure that you find as well, that uh, we're getting students, applicants, who bring both. They, they're, they're good at the academic side, they know how to perform in an academic environment, and they're also skilled in business. In the time that you've been at, um, you've been teaching here, have you seen big change Oh, enormous. So my first role on this campus was uh, as the director of a joint venture executive MBA program back in 2003. It's 16 years ago. And the change that we've seen in China in the education sector in those 16 years is astonishing. But that just tracks the larger economy. I mean, look, you know, any, in any sector you pick, you know, you know, put on a blindfold and point your finger at some part of China and try to find a place that hasn't changed at an astonishing rate for the past 16 years. You're hard-pressed to do it. You had this Chinese investment coming from abroad, from the Chinese diaspora, people who have been knowledgeable, coming back to their own cities, bringing back knowledge, bringing back investments, and needing also you know, to, uh, to foster, uh, foster managers, foster businesses, and so on, back to their own cities. And they're not only coming back from overseas, they're coming back from 
Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou, Shenzhen, the U-turn phenomenon right. of what were formerly the migrant workers, the largest migration in human history, 250 million people, going back to you know, where they came from and starting businesses there, uh, starting service enterprises there based on their earnings, but also what they've learned in working in a more international environment is having a profound effect on the overall Chinese economy. Yeah. This is a story that people in the United States just have no clue about, the power and the speed of the evolution in Chinese provinces. The fact that this hasn't been an export-driven economy for 10 years. Mm-hmm. We kind of missed that back home, yeah. back home meaning the United States. Well, what you mentioned about those, uh, yeah, those peak of growth in, uh, I would say, inland, uh, the fact is that right now, yes, because there is infrastructure, because there was good de- economical development, there is actually an incentive for those migrant workers, those migrant students, to get back home. There's jobs there now. Why should I stay in Beijing or Shanghai? It's more stressful there, it's more expensive, I'm away from my family. Now I can get fairly good economical there's situation. jobs there, there's back infrastructure yes. there, and because of companies like Ali and JD, you can actually buy things there that you couldn't buy before. And it's an incredible leapfrog phenomenon of, com- of organ- uh, towns and small villages and cities going from having no retail capacity to having drone capacity. They entirely circumvented the whole hypermarket. And if you think about it, the opportunities are actually there because when you start from zero, the opportunity for growth has no limit, right? If you are in a city like Shanghai, you are already pretty mature, so growth is slower. It's more difficult for people with... Base effect. Yes. So you you find this, yes, you find those backwards movement, this uh, this counter wave, I would say, of uh, of migration, people who are sustaining the the development of uh, local economy. So do you think that higher education will be more accessible across the whole of China in the coming years? Well, this gets back to investment. Is, yeah. uh, again, out of the 2,500 higher education institutions in China, full, you know, it, 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 it must be recognized that not a lot of those are operating in a global standard. And the ones that are operating in a global standard are in the, in the major urban centers, like here, or Beijing, or Guangzhou, or Shenzhen, uh, or places like Wuhan, or Chongqing. Uh, the reality is that the demand is going to increasingly come from different provinces beyond just those major urban centers, and the, uh, the country and the economies are going to need to invest to make that happen. That will happen. It's going to be slow. It's going to take time. It'll be messy sometimes, but it's already happening, and it will continue. It, 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 it's inevitable. It's inexorable. <laughs> I, mean, is the, I mean, this seems like there's a kind of a, a, not a battle, but a race to say relevant higher education and generally anything, anything in China really but it, where do you see that's a global battle yeah. and you can see that in the United States now with the number of people that are looking at you know having to spend an you know, enormous amount of money to go to an old educational model and they say well maybe that's not you know, maybe that's not quite the right choice mm-hmm. MBA enrollment in the United States is slightly down in the past several years people are starting to wonder if this is really the right uh, model for them how will your respective universities be changing to meet the demand. Well, it, here we're at an you know we're incredibly fortunate. We've got one of the best brands in the country. Uh, we have uh, sufficient uh, financial resources, both from our own uh, programs and also from uh, the directive that comes from the national and the and the provincial government to uh, develop ourselves. Uh, brand, financial resources, motivation on the part of the leadership, there's nothing missing here. So we're in the right place with the right resources to continue to develop rapidly to meet uh, what we see as the once-in-a-century opportunity. Well, I'd say for, for us, the, the, the future is, is fairly clear. I mean, we are at the moment building 
uh, a state-of-the-art uh, campus in Taichung, mm. which from what we have heard so far, I mean, the, the, the faculty, we start to, to, to know what's going to happen there, but it will be probably more vocational. Uh, there will be still some topics specifically coming from us from the business school. Uh, but this is really the, the next major project that we, that we have. Uh, the business school was the project that has just been, uh, been accomplished at the, at, the, at the moment, but that's the future of, uh, for us. And our president, President Xi, always have ideas on how the, the education should be, uh, should be developed and so on. So with more technology, with more, uh, more input of, uh, of real things into the education. Is there a large amount of government influence on the curriculum and the, and the universities here? At the university level overall? Mm. Surely. Mm. In the business schools? Yeah. Less so. Okay. Because business schools teach, you know, I mean, there's nothing, you know, political about uh, uh, cost-benefit calculations or net present value or regression analysis. Uh, those are all the tools of business. How about a, a joint venture university scheme? I, I say it's, it's not pretty much visible. When you when you look at the, for example, the module comp the, the program uh, specification that we have, the module specification and so on. There is nothing that says clearly where well, well, where you can see the influence, uh, so we are pretty much left uh, free of uh, of choosing the contents of uh, designing the programs as uh, as we are. But of course, yes, we know that we are a joint university, so our motto is again bringing the best of east and west. Mm. And we we know that when we design uh, when we design modules or when we design uh, programs, we try to bring this into the into the design of the of the curriculum. Yeah. In the business schools like, like ours, uh, the incentive of the national government, the regional government, the people, and our school itself is pretty closely aligned. There's not a lot of daylight there. Everybody has a similar goal, which is stable economic development. And there's a certain ways that we, you know, anybody would think you can get there. Uh, better education, not teaching people what to think, but teaching them how to think, and helping them be better at that. Everybody shares that goal. So therefore, because there's no daylight, in between us and goal, there's not a lot of daylight in process. Okay. It's just trying to find uh, the method to get there. I'd say. Indeed. But, um, but yeah, no, we, it's pretty clear what we what we are trying to achieve, and we, we try to put this into the curriculum when, uh, when we design it. Yeah. Okay, that sounds like a good place to wrap things up. So I'd like to thank you both for your time today, and um, sharing such interesting thoughts on uh, the future of higher education in China. Very good education. It's been thank a pleasure. Okay, thanks. Thanks. That concludes our fifth episode of season two in the Live Lounge podcast series. If you would like to get in touch with any of the panelists who participated in this episode, or if you have a business topic you would like to hear in a future episode, please contact us at the British Chamber of Commerce Shanghai. My name is Kirsten Johnston. Thank you for listening.